see uh, each and every one of you. I'm sorry to not be able to see some of you viewing online, but you're welcome uh, to view our service. Uh, we're going to continue our trek, uh, and I use that word intentionally, this journey through the book of Numbers, which is about our journey with the Lord, right? And uh, as we continue through Numbers, I want to remind you, it's no surprise to many of you that we will see themes come up again and again and again. Uh, I'm reminded uh, by my wife, you know, when she was uh, working with the CFC kids, going through that curriculum, and they would complain about, like, the Israelites, uh, why are they rebelling again? How are they doing the same thing again over and over again? And then the teachers reminding the kids, that's us. And so we need these reminders and as we enter into uh, this passage, we're going to see an, yet another episode. It is incredible. And by incredible, I mean it's, it's difficult to believe that after the Lord puts down rebellions, that other rebellions would happen right on the heels of that. Talk about a group of people that don't get it. And the reason why we need this is because today... We need the same reminders because we tend to gravitate toward that same sort of stiff-necked rebellion against the Lord if we're not careful. And one of the ways that we do that, and one of the particular dangers with the church today, is how many different churches you can choose from. Think about that. There wouldn't have been this episode today if you could just... I'm not going to go part of this journey toward the promised land. I'm going to join this other group, and I'm going to march with them toward the promised land. I mean, if you don't like that a church is Baptist, you can go to a Presbyterian church. If you don't like the church that's congregational, you can go to a Presbyterian or you know, more elder-heavy, a led church. Uh, if you don't like a church that's small, you can go to one that's big. If you don't like one that's too big, you can go to one that's medium. You can go to uh, churches based on their programs. One of the problems with that is escaping accountability through anonymity. So escaping accountability, people that know you. They know your good stuff, but they know some of your bad stuff too, and they can call you out. Escape that by going to a place that's a little more anonymous. Uh, that can be because the church is much larger. It could be because the church is really focused on programs, not so much focused on people. But oftentimes, it's churches where uh, the leadership is a little bit spineless. Because the leadership is more concerned gathering people for numbers than they are calling people out for stuff. Now, what I'm proposing to you is that the kind of church you want to be a part of is the kind of church that will put you out. Is that counterintuitive? Why would I want to be a part of a church that could or would, in certain circumstances, tell me you're out. Well, we do this in every other sphere, right? Uh, if any of you have ever been a part of a sports team, was it a sports team where you just walked on and told the coach, hey, I'm in? Well, uh, Tuesday and Thursday is practice. Yeah, I can't really make practice, but I expect my jersey to be hanging in the locker next week. I mean, with that, that's funny, right? That's crazy. Well, we worship sports, but when it comes to church, it's like, how dare you tell me I don't belong? Now, what we're going to see in the book of Numbers is that everybody doesn't make it to the promised land. And God in His mercy doesn't just wait till they get to the promised land and then go, surprise, some of y'all really weren't part of the group. Get out. 
along the way, in the journey, God reveals some people are not in. Some people are actually out. And it's not God playing favorites. It's not God just being sort of random, right? God is demonstrating that some people are along for the goodies. They're along for the milk and honey. They're along for the journey. But they're not along for what this is really about, a relationship with me. And when that gets exposed, the leadership for the journey needs to have the spine and the backbone to make that clear. Now, some churches are all spine and backbone and no heart. Those are the bully pastors. They'll love passages like this. Do what I say, do it how I want, and they're on a power trip. That's not right either. But we can become so disillusioned with that sort of bullying, uh, heavy-handed, despotic, dictatorial style of pastoring or leadership in a church that we gravitate to a dangerous opposite extreme where there really is no accountability. You just show up, and hey, everybody's a part of the team, especially in today's culture. Everybody gets a trophy. It's the Oprah Winfrey religion. You get a, you get a pass. You get a pass. Everybody gets a pass. We're not going to call anybody out on everything. Everybody just gets gifts. Everybody just gets applauded, and you do you. But turn with me to the book of Numbers, a book that oftentimes is skipped, I don't think just because of the repetition, but because of what is repeated. And it's this difficult idea, it's this difficult concept of uh, leadership in relationship with congregation, on this journey, disagreements, conflict, and not everyone making it. And so we're continuing with that theme in chapter 16, and if you're reeling like, wow, I thought we just covered this. Well, we did. It's It's another episode of the same issue. Now, you remember that last time we talked about a, a clear law about the Sabbath, and one person in the congregation was collecting sticks to make a fire. You can't make a fire on the Sabbath. That's punishable by death. But he didn't make the fire. He was collecting the sticks to make the fire, right? So it wasn't as clear. So they had to bring it to the leadership. The leadership prayed about it, talked about it, went to the Lord about it, and the Lord made it clear, yeah, he, his intention was to rebel against that law. It is punishable by death, and so they did. And to try to calm things down and help people not do those things that will get them in trouble as a prevention, right? A preventative measure. God said, wear tassels, blue tassels. You know, the same blue that's in the temple curtains, the same blue that the priests wear, that symbolizes divinity and holiness. You're holy. You're a holy people. Now you've got a group that's like, well, if we're all holy, who are you to tell me anything? See? And so right at the top of chapter 16, it says, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth. So you've got four sort of ringleaders here. Sons of Reuben took men. And it wasn't just the four ringleaders. They had people following them. They had people agreeing with them. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation. If you remember back, the chiefs were selected to be leaders. These are supposed to be leaders in the congregation, and they're backing these four ringleaders of rebellion, and they're chosen from the assembly, well-known men. Verse 3, they assembled together, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. 
Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? You can hear what they're saying is, how dare you stone a guy for collecting sticks? He was holy. If we're all wearing tassels, we're all holy. How dare you call somebody else out for a lack of holiness? You're not special. You shouldn't be leading us. We're, we're, we're all able to do this. In verse 4, Moses responds with wisdom. And the first thing he does is pray. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. It's this posture of, of prayer, taking things to the Lord. At some point, eventually, he says to Korah and all his company, in the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this, take censers, those contraptions that would carry incense that spoke to their priestly duties. These are priest, priestly function. Korah and all his company, put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. Now this whole process that Moses is laying out, he's basically saying, we'll see whose worship God is going to receive, whose incense God is going to be pleased with. One of the two of us is holy. So Moses grants. He's the one that passed out the tassels. There is a sense in which everyone's holy. But what Korah and company are doing is taking that truth, misplacing that truth, and coming up with heresy. They're saying, well, if everyone's holy, we don't need leaders then. If everyone's holy, what's the high priest for? If everyone's holy, then I'm a high priest. If everyone's holy, you don't have more access to God than I do. If everyone's holy, you can't call me out on something. Incorrect. Incorrect. There's a sense in which everyone's holy, but God organizes his people. There's structure and there's organization. You hear this today when people tell you, I really love Jesus, I just hate organized religion. Guess what? You hate the person who organized it, and that's Jesus. The church wasn't invented by a group of people in the 1400s. Like, you know what? Let's have an assembly. And like some people that dedicate themselves to preaching and laboring and teaching and other people that are more like marketplace and their employees and they don't have the time to do that much homework in the text, but some will have the time, and let's support them financially to have that time. And how about we have something, let's call them elders. Christians didn't invent that. That was given to them. And so to love Jesus is to love what he's organized and what he's structured. Can those structures abuse power? Yes. But if you dumped everything in your life that was ever abused, you'd be left with nothing else. This mechanic ripped you off, I'm not using a car anymore. No, you recognize you need a car in this day and age. You find a better mechanic. And so let's not slough off the things that God made that are good just because sometimes they're misused. But in this case, the excuse is this bit of theology, this bit of doctrine, and telling Moses, if we are all standing on even ground and you try to elevate yourself by leading us, telling us what to do, saying who's in, who's out, stone this guy, don't stone that person, then you've gone too far. Literally, the Hebrew says, you have too much for yourself. You're taking on too much for yourself. You're, you're biting off more than you can chew. You're, you're trying to make decisions that are above your rank. And then it sounds petty when you first look at it, and Moses is like, no, you've gone too far. It sounds like kids arguing in the house. No, you, no, you. And they just throw it right back. 
But he's saying, no, 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 actually, you think I'm going too far, but your stat- status here, what you already have, your presence in the congregation, your access to manna, your access to, the, the, uh, to live around this tent, your privilege of having God dwell in the midst of your assembly, that's too much for you. In other words, Moses is saying, you shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be here. And God is going to make that clear. And so they get ready for a confrontation to try to make that clear. He prays. He's discerning. He establishes that, yes, one of us is wrong. There's, there is a right and wrong here. Moses' tactic is not, well, let's just all get along, because if we lose these people, we lose 250 people. If we lose 250 people, now we really can't face off with the people in the land. There's an in, there's an out. There's people that make the team and people that don't. And so I want you to realize as well, as we press into this passage, that this was not a clear issue in the beginning. Remember, the, the, the dude was collecting sticks, and it was a question. He didn't murder somebody. If it was like he murdered somebody, okay. Or even if he made the fire, it'd be like, okay, yeah, that, that's it. But they had to discern it, didn't they? And so there was a fine line between like collecting sticks or collecting sticks to make a fire. That's what they had to discern. And one thing we can learn from this is just because an issue is a fine line doesn't mean a line hasn't been crossed. Just because it takes time and discernment, it takes prayer, and us falling on our faces to discern what's going on in this situation doesn't mean it's not clear enough to act on. And so a fine line can be a firm line as long as it's clear. And I'll also say this, churches shouldn't act on what we call church discipline, the inness and the outness of the group, on something that isn't clear. It does need to be clear. Even if it takes time to get that clarity, there does need to be clarity. And that protects leadership and the congregation from sort of playing favorites or making up rules, right? It does need to be clear. But just because it takes work to get that clarity doesn't mean you can't take action. That's what happened in this passage. Now Moses, Moses explains what's going to go down here. He tells them to take their censers. The Lord is going to identify who's who. And then verse 8, Moses said to Korah, Here now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that God... The God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel. He's rolling out their privilege to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle. These particular Israelites got to do more than other Israelites. They got to serve. They're Levites. To serve in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation and minister to them and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? Like That's not enough for you. You've got to have Moses and Aaron's position. Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? So just to reiterate, Moses is not saying, you're not holy. You have not no proximity to the Lord. He's like, you do have a lot. Why is that not enough? Why do you have to flatten everything so that no one can be your boss? Really, that's the issue. The issue is a self-serving desire to have no one tell you anything. And when you do that, you're not rebelling against leaders in your life. 
you're rebelling against the Lord who set up the structure of leadership. So Moses gets down to the bottom of the issue. This isn't about tassels, this isn't about collecting sticks, and this isn't about the holiness of every person. This is you not wanting to listen to what anyone else has to say. Now, if he brought up an accusation, Moses was sleeping around. He cheated on Zipporah. See, that, now that's an issue we can take care of, but it's not. It's, I don't want to be told anything. Well, how do we make that excuse? Well, uh, the tassels. Yeah, the tassels. Yeah, that evens everything out. It's not legit. Legit concerns should be brought to the assembly. And if they are legit, those leaders should not be in leadership. That needs to be a part of the structure as well. But in this case, it's not legit. And it's not an accusation against Moses and Aaron. It's taking a piece of theology and trying to make it so that we excuse what the Lord has made clear about how he structures and organizes his assembly to make it all the way into the land. You need the assembly, just like they needed the assembly. Beginning in verse 12, Moses comes up against what is typical of rebels even today. And when you call them out and you want to meet and have a confrontation, they don't want to meet. Uh, I've only been here for 14 years. I've only been pastoring, really, uh, for 16 years. Um, a telltale sign that someone is not concerned for what's best for the church, not concerned for what the Bible actually has to say, not concerned of making things better. They just want their way or the highway is when they refuse to meet. Well, let's meet and talk about it. Nah. They'll meet with their constituents. They'll meet in the gossip circles. They'll talk to other people and try to round up other people to rebel with them. But let's sit and talk about the Bible. Nah, 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 nah. That's a bad sign. Let's, let's go before the Lord and see who's right. I'm not going to kill you, right? We're, we're going to sit down. We're going to talk about this. And when we can do that, things tend to go well. Sometimes people say, okay, yeah, let's talk about it, and, and we talk about it. And if I'm wrong, I need to be corrected, and I have been corrected. But if the other person's wrong, or we're not seeing eye to eye, we bring some others along. Hey, there's a little dispute here, what do you think? The assembly, this is not a lone march into the promised land. It's together. We need each other for that. But if you're refusing to meet and refusing to confront, you're just already making the decision. You don't want to be a part of what's going on in the broader assembly. You want to do your own thing. Verse 12, Moses sent to call Dathan and Abram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. And they turned Moses' words back on him. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you, may, you must also make yourself a prince over us? Well, that's where they're wrong. He didn't make himself one. I do try to counsel students going through seminary. Uh, if they're not a part of a church and they're not a part of a congregation and they say, I'm called to ministry, I'm like, who says who? You woke up one morning and you're called to ministry? You need the assembly affirmation, brother or sister. We don't get to just say, I'm, I'm taking leadership. You need affirmation from the church. Now, whether you call it official ordination from a denomination, great. I like that. 
But none of this, I get to do what I want because I said so, because I had a dream last night, because I feel really charged up today. Moses did not make himself prince. And he says, they said in verse 14, Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and, vine- or, and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Why they say, would you gouge out the eyes of these people? They're basically saying, do you think we're blind? Do you think we're dumb? We can't see what you're doing. You brought us out of this beautiful place, brought us into this ugly place, promising another beautiful place, and we've not gotten in there yet. Now, what's the truth? They'd be in that beautiful place were it not for rebellion, right? But they're continuing with the rebellion. It's their fault, but they're blaming it on Moses. So another telltale sign is the blame shifting. Now, you all know that. The blame shifting that kills unity and obscures honesty. It's not truth. They've convinced themselves that Moses is something that Moses is not. And it's not because they hate Moses per se. It's because they, they don't want to be led. And so Moses was very angry, verse 15, and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them. I have not done anything to them. I have not harmed one of them, he says. So now he tells them, the Lord is going to make his choice. The Lord is going to demonstrate who is his and who's not his. Part of the assembly, not actually part of the assembly. Who's going to go with us to the promised land? Who's not going to go? Who is holy? Who actually is unholy here? So he draws a line. So let's read. Uh, the rest of this passage up to 35 to see how this goes and then we'll apply it to our lives today. Moses said to Korah, be present you and all your company before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow. You didn't want to come up? All right, just be there. And let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it and every one of you bring it before the Lord his censer, 250 censers, you also and Aaron each his censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I might consume them in a moment. God is like, I'm just going to kill all of them. We've heard this before. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin? And will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. If you were Dathan, or in Dathan's family, and you see the glory of the Lord descend, it's obvious God is here. We've seen this cloud before. We've seen what this God does and what he can do. And then the priests are like, everybody step away from Dathan's tent, and everyone's picking up, they're undoing their tents, they're packing their luggage, and they're moving out. This is a process. This isn't like in the schoolyard and you're like, everybody wants to be on my team, step on this side of the line, and it takes like three minutes. This is a process. What would you do? I'd be like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I don't know what's coming. They just stand there because they're resolute in their rebellion. That's amazing. 
how stiff-necked we can get sometimes when we just don't want to bend or budge. Verse 27, they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abram, and Dathan and Abram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. Unbelievable. Even for them, they can't change. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. If these guys just stand there and they continue their ways and they just die of old age eventually one day, then nothing has been proven. But if something miraculous happens here that takes them out, then you know what's up. If the Lord, verse 30, but if the Lord creates something new, and now you get specific, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Notice Moses doesn't make it about himself. And as soon as he finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. So not part of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up, and the fire and fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Remember the 250 chiefs that backed those rebels. They got taken out miraculously too, demonstrating that it is God's choice who's in and who's out. It is not the leadership's choice. It is not a, a, a person's choice. The Lord demonstrates who's in and who's out. Now today, we don't have access to a visible, physical cloud that descends and communicates out of the cloud. I don't pray in front of a cloud. I don't come out. I don't write scripture I'm not carrying tablets around going, hey, look, we were going to do this, but never mind. God changed his mind. Here it is, tablets. That's his finger, handwriting, right? I don't do that. We don't do that. We don't have that today. What do we have today? We do have his writing. His spirit inspired prophets and apostles to write down what is his desire for his people. And so we don't have to make things up. We don't have to try to figure it out. Now, some things are difficult to interpret. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the things that are clear in Scripture. And when they're clear in Scripture, and a church is not willing to call somebody out on it, that's a church that does not love you. If you are in obvious rebellion, in obvious sin, and the church just enables you, or they're scared to confront you so they go along with it, or they're just like, well, they changed the topic, they just never want to confront you on it, that's not love. Now, you could have a church that just wants to call you out on it, uh, Facebook post it, throw you under the bus in front of everybody. That's not love either. Love is to take it to the person and say, hey, I see this. This is not right. If you're really a part of the assembly, you've got to be like this. Not because I'm perfect, but because when I was stuck, somebody else got me unstuck too. We see somebody stuck, we don't just keep driving, just leave them fending for themselves on the side of the road. As an assembly, we help each other. That's Galatians 6. 
You see someone caught in a trespass, ignore them. You see someone caught in a trespass, enable them. No. You've you got to come alongside them, help them bear that burden. But sometimes people say, no, don't bear this burden. How dare you call this a burden? This is awesome. This is a privilege. This is something I want to do. And in those moments, uh, assemblies need to be clear that God demonstrates there's an in and there's an out. There's an in and there's an out. Not everyone that congregates on a Sunday morning is in. I'm not saying when you go out into the parking lot, you're going to be swallowed up by the earth. God is in charge of that. But this is why we do membership here. And I don't want you to just so bristle, like, oh, here's the plug for membership. Yeah, it is the plug for membership. We wouldn't do membership if we didn't think it was biblical. Membership is a privilege. And there's a difference between being a member of an assembly and an attender. Attenders could do whatever they want. You sit in the back, you come, you give, you don't give. You come, you don't come. Members meeting, whatever. Who cares what the agenda of the church is, what the leadership is praying about, what we're trying to figure out for this next year? I don't care. I'll come, preach your sermons, I'll leave. See, that's an attender. You're a spectator. You don't have a jersey. You're not on the team. You get to come into the stadium. You might have a season pass. You got the front seats. People like you. That's cool. You're not on the team until there's some kind of process to discern, yeah, you're a baller. You can say you're a baller, but I want to see the ball in your hand, right? You don't know the rules of the game. You don't know where the free throw line is. You don't know how to dribble. You're not a baller. Now, you can get there. Let's talk about it. We want you on the team. See? We want you on this team. But not everyone's wearing a jersey by sitting in a brown chair on Sunday morning. And if that offends you, I want that offense to grip you and keep you up at night until you figure it out. And when you're tempted to make it about Lucas, I hope and pray that you take it to the Word and make it about the Lord like Moses did. Is Lucas making this stuff up? I want to turn your attention to a couple passages. You don't have to turn there. For many of you, you're familiar with them. We remember in uh, Matthew 18, there's a very familiar verse there that we love to quote, uh, and I'm going to ask you what this verse is about where Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, there I am with them. What is that about? Anybody? I'm not trying to trick you. I just know we know what it's about. What, what is he, what is that, why is he telling them that? When two or three are gathered doing what? Praying. That's correct. Okay. That is correct. That is not misquoting it. That's not taking it out of context. Jesus promises when two or three are gathered praying, he's present with them. Now if I were to ask, what are they praying about? That's where we go, uh, I'm not sure, because I only ever hear the one verse plucked out of Matthew 18, not in its context. What they're praying about in that context is this. Is somebody in or are they out? And it's not always clear. This is why Jesus says, I'm giving you the keys to bind and loose. He's not talking about binding demons or loosing spirits. He's He's talking about the inness and the outness of the church. You can look it up. I want you to dwell on Matthew 18 this week and ask yourself, where are you? Somebody has an offense, you confront that offense one-on-one. They go, no, I'm not in the wrong. You go, ugh, you bring two witnesses, right? Not two of your best buddies, not two from your gang, not two from your neighborhood. Two people that saw what you saw. They can objectively say, that's wrong, sister. 
You're in the wrong, brother. We saw it too. This is not a Lucas issue. This is not a Bill issue. We saw it as well. And they still say, no, now it's high-handed. They're high-handedly sinning. One person saw it, two persons, three people saw it, and they care. They're not Facebooking it, taking it to the streets. They're going to the person and saying, hey, I'm not gossiping about it. I'm bringing it to you. This is not right. I don't care. I'm bringing two or three witnesses. I still don't care. I still don't care. I still don't care. Get out of here. Then you take it to the church. Now, if there's no organization, what's the church? I hope your church is not your group me chat from friends throughout your life. That's not church. That's friendships. Churches have elders. Churches take communion. Churches baptize. There is structure to it. And you have a lot of options. Presbyterian structure, Baptist, Episcopal. There's lots of different ways to, to, for that structure to, to manifest itself in a church. But it can't be structureless. You take it to the church. Now, if they still don't listen to the church, the church is telling the person, you cannot sleep with someone that's not your wife. And if you think that conversation has never had to happen in churches, you've not been around churches very long. Something that obvious. You've got to look someone in the face and be like, you know this is wrong. They'll invent their own theology, just like they did. Well, God wants me to be happy. He does want you to be happy. Stop sleeping with someone that's not your wife and have a happy You think divorce is going to lead to happiness? No, of course not, but they can't hear it. They make up their own theology. One person confronts them, they don't want it. Two witnesses come along, they still don't want it. The church weighs in on them and says, brother, you're wrong. And they still don't want it, then the church has to tell them you're not a brother. Because Paul, uh, Jesus tells the disciples, if you confront them and, they, and you win them, you've won your brother. They are a brother. And you kept them. And you, you snatched them out of the fire, right? But if they resist it, you don't go, well, everybody's a brother, you're a brother, I'm a brother, we all wear tassels. No, no, no. Some people wear the tassels. Some people shouldn't be wearing the tassels. Some people get the jersey. Some people are still in the stands. And we don't just pass jerseys out willy-nilly and everyone's running up and down the court. It's five on five. Wait, it's eight on five? No, no, no. We don't have refs here. No, organization. You know it's good. You know it's right. And it's good not just because it's right. It's good for you. It's good for us to have parents that tell you when you're wrong as a child. Because if they don't, you grow up doing whatever you want. And that is a destructive life. We see our teachers today frustrated beyond all belief. Now, some teachers took it too far, right? Sticking kids in the chokey, slapping kids, right? Like, have, have teachers taken it too far? Yes, but now teachers can't do anything. You can't say stop. You can't say something's wrong. All you have is trophies under your desk now. You've got to just pass them out. And hopefully if you trophy them enough, they'll be like, okay, you're cool. They hate you. These kids want order in their life, and they're not getting it at home, and they're not getting it from you. Where will they get it from? The games. We need order. And the church has to give it, not in a bully way, not in a despotic way, in a loving way. But it is not loving for churches to just give each other passes where we don't talk about ugly stuff, we don't talk about sin, we don't confront one another, because eventually those people will be swallowed up, and they could have been saved if the church was able to come alongside people and say, hey, this is not right. It's not going well for you. I want you to be a brother. 
I want you to be a sister, but you can't do it like this. And the goal of it, the goal of church discipline is never to put somebody out. The goal of church discipline is to rescue and restore. I've heard pastors ask the question, which sins are disciplinable sins? In other words, which sins are the ones where you go, hey, (laughs) you're out. And then other sins where you're like, I know, I do it, you do it. Just try to not do it too publicly. You know, I don't know what the reasoning would be. And what I try to propose is, I don't think it's about the kind of sin. It's about whether they repent over the sin or not. Theoretically, you can have somebody, they're cheating on their spouse. They're caught. They're confronted. It doesn't even go to phase two. One person, as soon as they're confronted, they break down, they repent. And you can't measure it just by tears. I've seen tears, and they mean nothing. I've seen not tears and a total changed life. That's not about whether someone's crying, but they're repentant. We don't kick them out of membership. They repented. And we don't go, well, that was a weighty sin. They need to be out of membership for a month. They repented. Now, what happens when you repent and ask God for forgiveness? Does he hold it off for a month? It's granted. This is why when we do confession assurance, we follow up confession quickly with assurance. So you know, if you confess, God forgives. No matter the offense, if it's true repentance, God forgives. Now, what if somebody does a misdemeanor, a small sin, peccadillo, but they don't repent? The confrontation might look different, like, hey, I know it's probably not a big deal. I know you probably didn't mean it, but here's a small thing. just want to call out, you know, because if that becomes a pattern, that's going to be a problem. I didn't do that. I mean, you did. But, you know, I'm not trying to make a big deal of it. I just want to make sure. I did not do that. Or I did that. That's not wrong. Yeah, yeah, it is. Here's the scripture verse. Nah, that's not what that scripture verse means. Two or three witnesses. Hey, man, I heard you had this conversation with so-and-so. And, you know, here's a couple other scripture verses. I mean, it is clear what the Bible church has taught this for 2,000 years. I mean, it's pretty clear. No, I'm making up my own theology. They're not going to say that, but that's basically what they're doing. See how a small sin becomes the thing that exposes that they're not in. What exposes that they're not in is not the level of sin they committed. What exposes that they're not in is they will not take guidance and leadership. They don't want it. And that's not in. You can't wear a jersey if there's no coaches for you. There's no refs for you. Nobody owns this league. I'm the league. Yeah, That doesn't work that way. You'll remember... I'll close with this. Paul writes the Corinthians, a messed up church. Corinthians is very encouraging because if you ever feel like, wow, church really is just not perfect, read 1 Corinthians. You'll be like, man, I love CFC. I mean, honestly. It's, it's, and he calls them saints. They have so many things going on, and he calls them saints. But they've got this guy that's committing clear sin in the vein of sexual immorality. And the congregation knows about it, and they rejoice about it. They boast about it. They think it's cool. And Paul calls them out and tells them, you need to excommunicate this person. And the, way he, the language he uses to deliver this person over to Satan. In other words, you're not with the Father. Your Father is the devil. And we're going to make that clear. We're not going to further confuse you by making you think that showing up to the Corinthian church means you're in with this father. 
your father is a different father, and we're making that clear with the excommunication. But then he tells them why. Because you need a no-toleration policy, that's the best policy? Well, no. Handing him over to Satan is the best chance you have to save him. 1 Corinthians 5. You want to save people? You have to be clear that there's an in and there's an out. If there's no in and out and just everybody gets a trophy, people are just lost, right? They're just lost in the shuffle. But if we want people to be saved, sometimes it takes that kind of clarity that there's an inness and there's an outness. And for the sake of clarity, your inness and outness isn't a piece of paper that says membership at a church. What that piece of paper should be a reflection of is your testimony of conversion to Christ. Not your track record, not how few sins you've committed, not how many hungry people you've fed, not how many missionaries you support. Do you know Christ as Lord, as Savior? Have you repented? Own that you, you earned death, but he took death for you on the cross, and you owe him everything. You are his now. He has bought you. He's purchased you. If you've come to that beautiful truth, you've got a jersey already. We just got to go get it out of the locker and give it to you. We don't have to invent it. We're just discovering and discerning that you are in. And that's what that process is about. It's to protect. It's to love on you. And it is a joy and a privilege to be a part of an assembly that just not everybody's a part of. Right? It is a privilege. That's what Moses was trying to communicate to them. You've got all this privilege. And you're going to throw it all away because you don't like the structure of leadership. And they lost it. They lost it. And so as we communicate to other people about what our church is like, many of you have sat in the membership class. We've talked about this. You've, you've seen those passages. As you talk to other people, people come, they visit, and they're like, what's CFC about? That's one of our main things. We do believe in membership. Other churches call it different things, partnership, whatever. But we do believe there's an inness and an outness. And it's a privilege and joy to be in the in-group. We don't make you, we don't haze you. You don't have to burn a, you know, a Greek symbol on your arm. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not a fraternity, but it is a fraternity, isn't it? It's a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And there is a way of discerning who belongs to that group. It's not a high bar. Well, it's a incredibly high. But it's, the bar is so high, you can't do it. Jesus did it. That's the entrance. It's his atonement that affords our belonging to the family. And nobody here wants to keep anybody out. We just want you to know that you're in. And it's for your own assurance that you should be clear on that issue. Are you in? Because if you are, God will get you to the promised land. This life is going to have bumps road, you know, along the road. You will get there if God's your king, if he's your father, if Jesus is your priest. If you're in, he will get you home. Let's pray as the worship team comes up.